Welcome, I'm Kate Byrne, president of SOCAP Global. I'm really excited to have what I think is one of the most important conversations of the day around climate and sustainability. Sustainability and climate are front and center among many corporations and US manufacturers as they step up and adopt more sustainable practices when it comes to their supply chains. Across all industries, be it automotive, food, packaged goods and retail, they're all taking key steps by hiring sustainability officers, some for the first time, making inroads in better packaging, improving product manufacturing, and better labor sourcing. While all these noble sustainability strategies, reducing waste and emissions and switching to renewable energy aim to do more with less, and that is essentially create more economic value by polluting less and using fewer natural resources, the do less harm is not enough. So what if companies actually reinvented their supply chains and business practices so that they functioned a little bit more altruistically? Turning to nature's inspiration, they could operate as regenerative businesses that give back tenfold and even a hundredfold more to society and the planet than what they take it from. Well, that is exactly what our guest today is doing at Walmart. An early mover in the field, Walmart's executive vice president and chief sustainability officer, Kathleen McLaughlin, is leading the 58-year-old brand into the future. Let's learn more about Kathleen, her journey, and the steps she and Walmart are taking to be more sustainable and positive contributors to the world overall. Kathleen, so good to have you here today. It's been a while since our paths crossed. It at crossed. Yes, it's great to see you, Kate. Thanks for having me. Ah, it's my pleasure. I'm really excited to have this conversation for a couple of reasons. One, just because I've been a long-standing fangirl of yours, but I also really am excited and heartened that such a powerful and heartfelt voice such as yours as a female leader is leading the charge here. So I really look forward to learning more about, gosh, how did you get here? So let's start there. Can you share a little bit about your path and getting to where you are today and what were some of the steps that you took? Yeah, ab absolutely. Well, you know, I've always been interested in development and addressing the biggest issues confronting our society. You know, ever since I was a young girl, I was raised by nuns, you know, in terms of my teachers, you know, in preschool. <laughs> and elementary school. So I always had this sort of deeply... Um, felt sense of social purpose as being integrated into to everything, all aspects of life for all people. And, and my parents really instilled that in me too. So I studied engineering and I thought I was going to go work in development economics, you know, development in Africa. And that was my plan. I ended up going on to study a bit more economics and politics. I thought that would really help me, you know, kind of add to my technical expertise and then along the way, I met some people from a consulting firm from McKinsey talking about the role of business in society and how business can make a difference. And I was really captivated by that notion. And I thought, well, you know what, maybe I'll go do that for a couple of years. I'll learn about business. I'll see how it works. And then I can bring that into, into my development work. So uh, I did that. I went to McKinsey. I thought I would be there for two years and I ended up staying for over 20. And wow. Yeah. And the reason I stayed that long, really a couple of things. One, I found that that really was a place to have incredible impact. The kinds of projects I got to work on, the people I got to work with, the difference that I felt, you know, I could make and was making through the work 
helping institutions get better and serve more people, it really did seem like the best place to make a difference. And I was learning so much, you know, I started out as a young person right out of college. I didn't know what I was doing. I learned about business. I learned how to be a leader. You know, I learned how to solve really tough problems, learned how to work with lots of different groups. And ultimately one of the areas that I really focused on was large scale transformation, how to transform systems. And, you know, that's really what led me to Walmart. I had been working in retail. I had been working in what uh, McKinsey called at the time, the social sector, doing a fair amount of work in global public health, things like maternal health, HIV AIDS, helping to improve health systems in Africa. And it was always a bit of a weird, you know, kind of client portfolio because two thirds of my work was with retailers, never for Walmart, by the way, like all the, all the other retailers. And then a third was in the social sector and those two worlds didn't really integrate that much. And so I started to feel that there was a better way for me to bring that expertise, you know, together. Right. And like so many things in life, you start to form a a question or an intention about something. And then the next thing you know, an opportunity presents itself. So really out of the blue one day, I got a call from a friend of mine, Sylvia Burwell, who I had gone to school with back in the day. And we actually joined McKinsey together and known each other for decades And she was at Walmart. She was running the Walmart Foundation. And she had gone there from the Gates Foundation, where she really helped get the foundation started. And she was leading the global development portfolio before she went to Walmart. And she said, listen, Kathleen, I know you really care about the role of business in development. And I'm about to go work for Obama in D.C. because he had just gotten elected. This was like early 2013. And she said, you should come and take my job. You should come and do my job. It'll be perfect for you. And, and I was living in Canada at the time. I'm American, but I was living up in Canada. I have a Canadian husband, three little dual citizen children. Nice. And I said, you know, Sylvia, I'm not moving to Arkansas. Are you kidding? <laughs> she said, no, no, you're going to meet people. You'll see what I mean. And so I did. I flew down to Bentonville for what I thought was going to be like a field trip, basically. And I would, you know, when else would I ever go visit Walmart? Because as I said, right. I never served them. And so I met people and I was just blown away and, you know, by the, the, the values, the culture, the aspirations. And basically what they said is, look, here's what we want to do. And you got to remember, this is like, you know, early 2013, they said, we don't just want you to come and lead the foundation and do philanthropy. We want you to play a business role where you would work through our business, help us figure out what could we do through business to make more of a difference on all of the critical issues that are relevant for us as a retailer. And that's really, I mean, I, I flew home that night and I said to my husband, I, you know, I can't believe it. This is really interesting. But of course, honey, you'd never moved to Arkansas. And he said, no, I have to think about it. And th- that's what happened. Uh, the rest is history. Oh, that's terrific. And you know why I love that story on a couple of different fronts? I believe that there are so many people that instantly think of firms such as a McKinsey or as a Walmart through these old, old legacy model companies that don't have a heart at all. They're so it just mired in shareholder, shareholder, shareholder primacy. And I think more often than not, they actually do have those very soulful hearts and they just hadn't had either the wherewithal at the time to be able to bring that to light. And I completely hear you with regards to the amount of change that you can drive by shifting a huge entity like a Walmart from, I mean, the, the ripples that that affects, right? From its customers, from its employee base is truly astonishing. 
I don't blame you. I would have said, yeah. <laughs> and kudos to your husband for, you know, being, being game to do it. Absolutely. Oh my gosh. And I love also the fact, the whole STEM piece, right? The mat, the woman, that's, that is terrific. So I have a question for you. With all that, obviously the decision to go to Arkansas was not a, a hard one after all, but what has been one of the hardest decisions you've had to make? And I'm sure there've been probably quite a few. So, and I'm curious about just why did you choose the answer you did? And just sort of walking through, you talk about a bit about systems. Mm-hmm. So you must be something of a systemic thinker. And I think that's coming more and more into play. I'd love to just get a window into your mind yeah. and just making process. Yeah. Cause I think a lot of folks can really learn from that. Yeah. Well, you know, the decision to go down to Arkansas and to work for Walmart was a massive decision and not just a professional one, but for my family too, you know, of course. I, as I said, I was at McKinsey, my thought about retirement for McKinsey was to do a lot, what a lot of other people do, which is great, which is leave and maybe serve on some boards, you know, work with an investment firm, do a lot of work in the, in the social sector, in the nonprofit sector. That's what I thought I might do at some point. Um, So to decide to leave consulting, to go work for a company, be part of the leadership team, move to Arkansas, you know, which was a very big deal for my family and for my children. That was a big risk. And, you know, we decided to, to do it. And and, because it's one of those things where the opportunity, the chance to make a difference, the role, everything was, how do you say no to that? And the downside risk was, okay, well, if it doesn't work out, then we'll just, we'll go back to Canada. So it wasn't actually, you know, as we thought it through, it was, it was okay. So we ended up doing it and ended up being fantastic for the family. It was a really developmental uh, experience for them in so many ways to have to navigate a new culture and to learn to make new friends. And it ended up being really great from a development point of view for everyone in the family as well. So, you know, glad, glad that I did it. I would also think that, quite honestly, and we're not to get political and I won't, but right now, this notion of just recognizing the very broad-based cultures, there's so many different cultures. So the culture of Arkansas versus the culture of out here, I'm in the Bay Area. Yeah, I mean, where, Canada is very different, right? In Canada, Canada is exactly. society. So yeah, it's a great education. Exactly. And so, especially for the kids, just to keep their eyes open and, you know, move through life with a beginner's mind, I think would be incredibly powerful. Okay. So you hop on the plane, you zip on down, bam, there you are in Arkansas. What was that first year? Like, What were some of the challenges you took on that first year? Well, so the idea was to identified the issues that are most relevant for Walmart, social issues, environmental issues, and then figure out how can we make faster progress on those through business. And, you know, it wasn't as if Walmart was just starting on that kind of Mm -hmm. endeavor. I mean, really back in 2005, Lee Scott, who was the CEO at the time, had set out a pretty sweeping agenda for Walmart in sustainability and environmental issues, but social issues too. I mean, he had called for a move to 100% renewable energy, eliminating waste from operations, working on sustainable products. He called for an elevation in the federal minimum wage, healthcare. Like there were a lot of things that he had set out. He was ESNG. He did, he really did. And so, you know, the interesting thing, and I I hadn't really appreciated that when I went down to Walmart that first day that, that, you know, I hadn't studied the company that much. I didn't know about this. And as I met people to a person, 
what struck me was how purpose-driven, how mission-driven they are. And, you know, you talked about business. I think there can often be a lot of caricatures, you know, about business in general and certainly about Walmart. Like I'd heard them all before I went down there and I was like, yeah, we'll see what, you know, what this is. And then I met people and I thought, oh, this is not at all what I expected. Like, these are like really amazing people who have this mission and who are doing it through business. And, you know, the, the idea of bringing people affordable, safe, food around the world, you know, apparel, things for people's homes, the basics of life, like that's a, that in and of itself is actually a really noble purpose. But what surprised me was then, how do we do that in a way that creates economic opportunity for people through work that helps people kind of get a start, acquire skills, advance? How do we do that in supply chains? You talked earlier about, you know, not just eliminate waste, you know, save energy, but a more regenerative approach, you know, how do we actually transform consumption? How do we transform production so that supply chains are truly sustainable, meaning you're regenerating the resources, right, to create the food and the apparel and, and elevating the people, right, helping through work, people achieve potential, which goes way beyond a respect for human rights. Like that's, yeah, that's like the base condition. Like now how do we go way beyond that and really unlock potential for people, not just through work, you know, at the the retail level, but right through the supply chain. And, you know, what about a role in communities? How can we make a difference for people day to day? You know, Walmart, everybody walks through the door at some point or orders online these days, right? And it's the whole spectrum of political ideologies, religious beliefs, men, women, I mean, you name everybody at some point. And so that's a tremendous asset, like the trust that you have with people to help them with their day-to-day lives in that relationship. Well, we found we can work with that to actually help communities bridge divides. Like that's interesting, right? Especially so much division. So, um, you know, there's a lot there, a lot there, um, you know, to, to work with. And that's really how we go about it is to say, okay, well, what are those issues? And, and for us, it's, it's very much this idea of shared value, right? The sort of Michael right. Porter, Mark Kramer notion of it's not corporate social responsibility or philanthropy, yep. even though we use philanthropy as, as, you know, to extend the impact, but it's really about a different philosophy of what is the role of business anyway? Like the role of business in society is to create wealth for society, and of course, you need to pay back the money to the shareholders because they gave you the money to start the business, right? You got to pay right. it back. And by the way, a lot of those people are pension holders. They're like retirees who need the return to kind of for their retirement. But okay, they're only one of several stakeholders. And here's the insight. You can actually maximize the business success of your enterprise by delivering the customers and the employees and the communities and everybody else, suppliers, the things that they need to thrive, the things they care about, because then they give you more of their life and their business and everything else, which then allows you to deliver more. And now that's your flywheel, right? You kind of get this thing going. That's shared value. So it's not like, oh, um, I could kind of go for renewable energy or I could run a good business. It's like, no, no, if I harness the energy and scale it up, that will help my business, right? So that's the philosophy. I totally get it. <clears throat> um, I was a publisher at Fast Company, created the Social Capitalist Awards in 2004. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, this is what but, you do, right? So. <laughs> but, yeah, but it was like, just as you said, it's like, how is it we're not doing this? Right. Why? What? There's such a trade-off mindset, right? And that's, I mean, what, what excites me is I do believe we're at a, we're past a tipping point, actually. And it's why you see ESG taking off 
in the investing world because people get it now. It makes sense, right? You do the analysis and you're like, oh yeah, okay. So if I have a spreadsheet where I'm trying to calculate NPV on a business, the old way of thinking 20, 30 years ago might've been, okay, like almost like, you know, the joke about the economist, like it's all theoretical, right? So it would have been like, all right, um, okay. So I got revenue and I got costs. Hmm. Best way to create values. I'm going to cut those costs. Okay, good. Now I have more profit. It doesn't work that way. Cause yeah, maybe you can do that for a year, but then two years from now, nobody wants to work for you or no customers or whatever. Like it's sooner or later, it's going to bad quality product, like whatever the thing is. So actually it's all about the assumptions you put into your financial model. So shared value says, all right, if I want to grow my revenue, I want to have a more resilient supply base. I want to have a good cost structure. I want to have license to operate all those things that I need to sustain those financial projections infinitely over time. Then there's all the other things that I have to just work into my business, new products I'm selling, new services, um, my associate or employee value proposition, my approach to sourcing, like all of that works together. You can't separate social, environmental, economic success if ever you could. That's the insight. And what's exciting is um, more and more people get that. And so I think we do have a shift in perspective going on. I think if ever there was a time when people thought they could just go, oh, financial short-term, most people now realize it's all connected and they have to um, consider the longer-term horizon and the interplay of those factors. Exactly. And I think one of the most <clears throat> heartening signs where, to your point, you know, we've um, in our world, we, we look a lot at, OK, we've got the converted. How do we get those um, the curious and the somewhat, you know, agnostic or skeptical? And so that's exactly that's exactly how one does it is by make, demonstrating the relevance of the whole system to them. Right. So I have a question for you, though. So the, I, w- I was going to ask really initially, so what are your thoughts around ESG, you know, as a, as a filter and as a framework? Yeah. The E piece, that's been really pretty clear and easy to measure. Mm-hmm. S has been the tricky widget, although I think that's going to begin to shift. And mm-hmm. then the governance piece. What are your thoughts? I mean, is there a way or how could we improve ESG or get more folks to come in and believe? So um, I think, um, you know, there's been a lot of work. George Seraphim at Harvard has done Love some him. really, right, really yeah, interesting work, good work, where he is looking for correlations between leadership on climate, let's say, and, and um, sustained financial performance and so on. And he can show correlations on a bunch of things and then other things he can't. And I think one of the reasons that we have trouble showing correlations is it's not, you have to have an investment thesis for your environmental, social and governance initiatives and a theory of change that actually does result in shared value creation. So it's actually not as simplistic as going, what's your average wage? Or um, I don't know, uh, any, any metric. It would be like, imagine in the financial world, if I said to you, what's your revenue? Oh, it's a big number. Oh, that's really good. I'm going to invest in you. You have a lot of revenue. It would make no sense, right? When you decide right. to invest in a company, you do the homework. You understand what business are they in? Who are their competitors? Who are they serving? What are the, what's their capability set? And ultimately, you're forming a view on the confidence in the management team and the assets of that company to create the value that they say they're going to create, right? 
It's the right. same thing in ESG. You need an investment thesis. So the problem is in, in a lot of ESG screens, the methodologies are just bad. Like some of them just say, oh, well, you know, controversy assessment. Let's see how many articles got written about Apex plastic company. And if there are a lot of articles, oh, that must be bad. Not considering the context, the scale of the company and so on. You can imagine for Walmart, we're so big. You know, if that's, the, if that's your metric, absolute number of articles that get written about, you know, Walmart, you would either say we're the most amazing company on the planet or the worst. Right? There's a lot of articles, right? So it doesn't make any sense. Depending on the day, exactly. Um, like, you know, that kind of approach or, or some people um, bring a very um, ideological perspective with a single theory of change about how to address a social issue. And they're measuring people against that. So instead of saying, okay, uh, the outcome we want to see is economic prosperity or zero emissions, you know, supply chain. Now tell us company X, what's your strategy? What are you investing in? What's your theory? How do you think you're going to get to that economic prosperity for people or zero emission supply chain? And then judge whether that seems robust, is that effective? You know, and then you're betting on whether that strategy is going to deliver. That's how ESG should work. That's complicated. You don't get that by going, oh, tell me, you know, your average wage or what's the, you, you can't do it that way. And you also can't get hung up on your favorite solution. So, you know, um, fishing is a good example, sustainable fisheries. Yes. For a long time, people were really hung up on, are you using line and pole to catch the fish? That's not the point. The point is, are you overfishing? Whether you're using, you know, a bucket or a net or, or a line and pole or however you're doing it. And by the way, yes, there's overfishing, there's labor issues, there's emissions, there's other things too. It's more like, what's the outcome you want? Then form a view on multiple paths to get there. And if you're going to invest in a company, you got to convince yourself that the path they're taking is right and is effective. That's not easy. So I think what needs to happen is investment firms need to bring as robust an approach in terms of teams and investment and analysis and judgment and interview the management team and everything else to form a view on ESG as they do financial value creation. And it'll never be as simple as, give me these five metrics. And if, you know, I'm going to rate you in, in my black box and there's the answer. Right. Exactly. It can't be that formulaic. It's going to be so nuanced. Plus I think things are shifting so much and there's so many different externalities. It's got to be something of a dynamic situation and yeah. um, explanation. I do find it heartening. And I think we are getting more and more people to your point, looking at it, one, we have the data that demonstrates, yes, the return in the long run. If you're so, if one is more focused on the financial, mm -hmm. that it is in fact a more sound um, avenue to take. I also think, you know, now that larger buckets that previously had been off limits, so pensions, 401ks, some of these are now starting to get more endowments are starting to get more involved and a bit more savvy, yeah. which I think will also further and get more and more people involved. And so then we can continue to improve and get yeah. a lot smarter on it. Yeah. So we've talked a little bit about regenerative uh, and CSR, et cetera. To you, what do you see as the main difference between sustainability and regenerative? One of the things I love most about what where you're you're leading Walmart and and the work that you're doing is regenerative mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because it is different. Yep. 
it's an extension, a deepening, a broadening. I mean, sustainability is a great word, right? And yeah, of course. It means is it ought to, it ought to imply regenerative, right? It ought to mean you can do something all day long infinitely, right? Because you figured out a way to sustain it. Right. Um, yeah. Like any word, right. It can come to mean different things and it can start to have some limitations, you know, to it. And there is a school of thought or a way of thinking in sustainability that, you know, I think you said this earlier, it can be a, about do less harm. Yep. You know, like, Oh, um, reduce the resources you use, generate mm-hmm. less emissions, which are good. I mean, yes, that's part of the, we all need to do those things, but the bigger idea is to transform the way that we live on the planet so that it's truly sustainable, which unfortunately right now means we actually have to regenerate because we've gone too far as a society, right? And and unfortunately it's not just emissions. There are other boundaries on our planet that we have now exceeded. So, you know, forests, oceans, just land use in general, grasslands, you know, and, and what we're doing to things like soil health, pollinator health, biodiversity, and there is a time, I gosh, 10 years ago, before I joined Walmart, before I did a lot of this, I didn't, I probably wouldn't even known, have known what those things mean, you know? Like, yeah. About biodiversity, why would a company care about that? Well, it turns out, you know, unfortunately, um, we now all have to worry about it. And this is one of those, you know, where we come back to people who work in business are people too. And last time I checked, we actually live on this planet, you know, along with people yep. who don't work in business. And so... We actually all have to address these things because um, it is a, a disaster in the making, right? And of course, the challenge of it is a little bit tragedy of the commons and a little bit, it's a long, slow moving impact, which requires action now. So the notion of regenerative is to say, we actually need to fundamentally transform. Right. Um, how do we produce our food? How do we transport ourselves around? You know, how do we live in our homes? How do we build our homes? All of those things. And so every company, whatever industry you're in, every government agency, every NGO needs to step back and go, okay, what are the physical realities of our planet right now? These are non-negotiable. They're happening now. Climate, biodiversity, all these things. And what's relevant for me, what I do in my corner of the world. And there is something for everyone. And so for a retailer that sells food, you know, and apparel and things like that. For us, it's okay. So where does this stuff come from? Supply chains, what's going on with the buildings? What's, what about our people and their prospects? It's, it's people and planet. And how do those um, business practices evolve so that we can address those concerns now? Because um, it'll take some time. To make the shift. Completely yeah. agree. That's why I love the notion. I was reading um, a recent interview that you had done, and I love the notion of sustainable consumption. Mm-hmm right? And the decarbonization. Yeah. And I think those are two things. I think so often people think, oh, I'm just one person. I can't make a difference, but oh, oh. <laughs> yeah, you can. That's the whole thing, right? That goes for voting in an election and it goes for dealing with the global pandemic. Those are two examples of where, you know what, we need lots of everybody's to do their one action and then we get a result. <laughs> exactly, because it's, com- it's I completely I completely agree. I often talk about how, you know, we can vote with, where, with our feet where we work, we can vote with, um, you know, our wallets, what we consume, and then we right. can vote with our heart, what we financially support. Right. And these are all simple, like little easy things. So. Every time people point one finger, there's three fingers pointing back at them. Yeah. 
Yeah, it is absolutely about collective action. And, you know, that's the big challenge, right? Because what we need to do on climate or biodiversity, racial equity, pick your big topic, the world has shrunk down. And for us to make a difference, uh, we need not just business, obviously, but we do need business and government and civil society and individual citizens, like everybody has to uh, be engaged in. Exactly. It's our issue. It's not yours, mine. His, hers, theirs. And, and uh, you know, sorry, just one other thing. Come yeah. I do think we need a spirit of collaboration and giving people benefit of the doubt and good faith. You know, we were talking earlier about this caricature. Um, I worry a little bit about that. You know, like people are kind of in a mood to demonize others and we can't have that. <laughs> we gotta, like, like, we've got to work on this stuff. We're going to work on it together. You know, let's do that. Well, and... I couldn't agree more. And I think, you know, in this day of greenwashing, et cetera, you know, a lot of these, these corporations, many of the business roundtable signatories, mm -hmm. I'm very grateful and thankful that they signed the letter. So that's step one. Now let's not hammer everybody to the nth degree. It takes a while for them to get things started. It's never going to be as fast. Right. But Let's support them in going exactly. that direction. As that's what we need, right? Because let's reward, let's support, let's let's celebrate the progress. And yeah, you know, if you try to um, change any institution or any culture, there are many things that have to shift. And so, you know, yes, let's right. And there's that there is that first transition process too. It doesn't happen overnight. The other point that I think you really um, you've been using the word transform a mm -hmm. lot. That's exactly what we need as opposed to reimagining, mm -hmm. iterating, because those are all just that. It's a small little shift on something that's, you know, working, but it's kind of okay. And it's, to me, it's sort of like putting a bandaid on or putting a little extra tape on something. So it'll last a couple more years. We're at that point to your earlier comments to, we need to make some real exponential change. So that's mm -hmm. going to require true transformation. Mm -hmm. I suppose to just a simple innovation. It's actually, it is, it is transformation and it, and it is, um, of, of a broader system, right? So that means we're talking about narratives and mindsets, culture, individual mindsets and behaviors. We're talking about policies, practices and tools, networks of relationships that people have, you know, the way that power is held, lots, it's every element of a system. And that's what makes it so complex. Uh, exactly. Uh, and yeah. that's why it's taken a while for people to get onto it. The way, you know, we've, I kind of look at it as there the five different forms of capital, right? So there's reputational, which is that narrative. There's the social, which speaks for itself, financial, that intellectual, mm -hmm. uh, which is the educational and the technology alloc that helps in allocation yeah. of everything, and then political. And right. all of us have access to all five, some more than other, but that's why collaboration is so key. Yeah, exactly. Right. That's a really good frame. Mm -hmm tap into this. So quick question for you of all of the fabulous achievements that you've done now and that you've been able to lead Walmart towards, and we'll talk a little bit about some of those, mm -hmm. which are you proudest of? Mm -hmm. Or is there one that makes, just warms your heart a bit or, cause I'm just, they're all terrific accomplishments. And uh, you know, well, so first of all, I'd say there, you know, everything is a work in progress. I don't think we've achieved destination on anything. Right. But, and the second thing I'd say is, you know, 
I think I mentioned to you when I, when I went down to Arkansas and met everybody that I met that day, I couldn't, I thought, wow, I had no idea about these people and the way they are. <laughs> there are two and a half million people like that who work for the company. And, you know, and there are hundreds of millions of customers and, you know, thousands of suppliers. And then they in turn have millions of people and then lots of NGOs that we work with. And so if you, if you look at that whole ecosystem that has, is connected to each other and is working in some way, shape or form on equity, sustainable supply chains, economic, you know, development or opportunity, community cohesion, some of the things I mentioned, they're all working on those things. And I am really proud of the progress in a bunch of them. I mean, what makes me excited? So for example, on climate action, which my goodness, we have a long way to go as a society, but I think we were the first retailer to set a science-based target for emissions reduction. And that included our scope three, meaning all the supply chain we now have 2,300 suppliers who are working together, who've made commitments and taking action to avoid emissions in supply chains, 2,300. And to date, they've delivered 230 million metric tons against a goal of a billion, our gigaton goal of emissions. Wow. That's amazing. And that's, that's just a huge. start. That's just like the beginning. So that makes me really proud. I think it makes us one of the largest private sector collective action initiatives. And don't get me wrong, it's by no means sufficient in terms of what we need from the government and everything else, but it's a good, you know, that's a, that's makes me proud. Good start. If I look at, you know, racial equity, for example, or gender equity and what is achievable through business, again, another one where there's a long way to go. But if you look at our representation in the board, in our um, senior executive ranks, right through to the front line and the promotion rates, of women, of Black people, for example, in the U.S., or our track record with LGBTQ or disabled people, any of those dimensions, we're now disclosing a couple times a year where we stand on representation. Mm -hmm. And I think we have a good start. And there's been a lot of great work done over the years by colleagues around really using retail jobs, especially entry-level jobs, as a springboard for advancement. So that's another area. So there, there are a few others, but the, I would say economic opportunity for people and helping them advance in life and, and an equitable, inclusive opportunity, right. that's one. And then the climate action would be another. So going into the, the equitable piece of it, what were some of the steps that you took there? Are there, for instance, is there, do you do training? Do you do deep dive work do you in addition to I think the early stage job is a great idea I mean that's terrific but what are some of the because I'm just thinking that listeners may really want to think okay so if Walmart's able to do it come on I should be able to do it yeah so just curious do you have any recommendations of steps and practices to take towards that for for racial equity or for through business Mm -hmm. oh yeah absolutely and so I mean, it's something that Walmart's been working on for a long time, but, and, and you see it in the numbers, right? If you look at the, as I was saying, the percentage of representation or, or even things like, you know, fair pay and so on this is good. But what we realized is that same shared value idea that we could bring assets that we have in our company, our products, our services, our jobs, purchase orders with suppliers, our voice, our philanthropy, we could bring all these things to bear in a way we could actually tackle or make a difference on disparities more broadly. And so that's a newer set of initiatives we have underway that I'm really excited about. So we have decided to take on four different arenas 
and um, actually through the BRT, because Doug McMillan, our CEO, is uh, chairing that now, um, the BRT is taking on the same four systems and asking companies to consider how can you, through your business, make a difference to advance equity, to tackle systemic racism? Because as we were just saying, you know, if you're talking about a system, it's mindsets, it's practices, it's policies, you talk about all the forms of capital, it's all those things. Yep. So the four, financial inclusion, criminal justice, education, and in our case, it's particularly as it pertains to adult learners, Yes. And health disparities. So if you take each of those four and you say, okay, let's just take a look for a minute at, at the disparities as they pertain to the Black and African American community. You can do the same thing with Hispanic community or, or, or Native people. It's shocking. I mean, we all read bits and pieces of this, but when you look at it all in one place and those four systems and say, hmm, okay. So it feels like something systemic is happening here because <laughs> everywhere you look. So what, what we're trying to do is say, okay, through our business, what are the things we could do? Are there different products we could launch? Are there different services we could provide? Could we do our own hiring and development and advancement more creatively and quicker, better outcomes. So, all right. So for example, I was talking about our results. So we have about 6.8% is our latest report, a uh, percentage of our officer ranks that are black or African-American in the U S well, okay. That's, you know, better than a lot of other companies, but it is not 13%, right? It's not like a representational level. Uh, in terms of the population. So, all right, how do we go faster? Like, what could we do? And so um, there's a lot we can do uh, in terms of barriers to entry. So for example, we don't have degree requirements uh, to come get a job at Walmart. We don't say, oh, you know, we need a bachelor's or what have you. We were very early proponents around um, second chance hiring and that sort of thing. That's part of it. But then so much more, what are opportunities for people who are in work on the job to get new skills and access to different career paths while they're getting paid? So they're earning while they're learning and then more deliberately connect people to that next job and what skills do you need? Okay, now you got that, now you move here, now you move there and to be more intentional about that development trajectory for people. And then of course, there's our, our, our purchase orders and the way we can make a difference for suppliers. And again, for many years now, we've worked with women-owned businesses and other kinds of diverse-owned businesses to try to source more from them, build their business capability, help them provide others, all those kind of things. So those are just examples in the kind of meat and potatoes of how we run our business. And then beyond that, you know, what could we do in terms of advocacy for public policy? What can we do around narratives and storytelling and just helping people in our communities understand the issues and what they could be doing differently. So we're looking at all of that now. And then what we do is we're taking the, the Walmart Foundation and saying, okay, well, where are some areas where philanthropy could help address some bottlenecks in those systems and help what we're trying to do through business go even farther in terms of addressing you know, disparities. So for example, if we were going to address health disparities through our business, affordable access to produce, healthy food, you know, nutrition education through our business, encouraging all those things that food access, stores and food deserts, all of that, you know, through philanthropy, could we then play a role with nutrition education, right? Mm -hmm. Or access to meals if people can't even afford to buy them at all, or, you know, things like that. So we try to find those opportunities to sync up 
what we're doing through our business with what we can do um, through philanthropy to accelerate progress. That's amazing on any one of those things, but it's true. It's you are, it is such a large body Mm. that has such a major thundering impact on the world as we know it. Well, and, but that's why it's got to be through business, right? Because if all it was, was like me and my team and, you know, do some grants, like we wouldn't have any impact. It's got to be every merchant, the real estate people, the people in the stores, like everybody thinking this way and they're playing their part in some aspect. Yeah, no, I totally agree. It's that whole notion too of situational humility where one realizes, okay, I cannot do this my my department, my company, my even my sector alone can't. So how can we work together and figure yeah. that out? And that's what, what a party at the table, you know, with many others. <laughs> so. No, absolutely. Okay. So in a recent article that was, uh, well, and also an event that you did with my former, my former life, Fast Company. Oh, right. Mm-hmm. Excited to see you um, grace uh, the stage that they had, which is really terrific. There was talk about, I know that recently there had been a shift, right? In the carbon emissions, like the due date and what, you know, how things were going to shift with regards to how all you were going to be carbon emission. It was at zero carbon emission without offsets by 2040. Yes. Is that game on? You think that'll, you've got it? Oh yeah. No, I mean, you know. That's That's exciting. That's, you know, you got to set big goals so you can really uh, inspire people to innovate, right? So, yeah. So, so we had a science-based target. We've made progress on emissions reduction. We, we earned an A from CDP, which I'm very proud of. By the way, you asked what I'm proud of. Right, exactly. Another. What we've done now is to say, okay, so science-based targets, that's in line with the Paris Agreement. It's a certain trajectory of drawdown on emissions and, you know, that's good. But wouldn't it be great if we actually said, okay, let's just set a date when it's zero, which is a steeper, much steeper trajectory than zero. (laughs) And so, um, yeah, here's how we think we're going to get there. So if you look at emissions in our footprint, it's basically energy. So there's renewable energy and there's energy efficiency. We've been working in those arenas for a while. We're at almost 30% renewable energy now, and we think we'll be at 50% by 2025, and we want to be at 100% by 2035. So there's a glide path there. Mm-hmm. And one of the cool things we're doing now is, you know, even trying to use our procurement capability and renewable energy to help others access it. So we did a, a thing with Schneider Electric to offer our suppliers access to renewable energy which, you know, not everybody can have a procurement team for renewable energy. So anybody can participate in this. So we're excited about that. And and so far, I think we've contributed like 1.2 gigawatts of energy to the renewable grid through our projects, projects that we've helped fund. So we're trying to add net capacity to the grid in America through the, the projects we're doing. So anyway, that's one piece. The second piece is refrigerants. So all the refrigeration you need for a freezer case, refrigerators, for the air conditioning, you know, we sell food, you, you have to, food safety, you got to be mindful of that. So that's, that's tough. I mean, the technologies for that are known and very expensive, but we got a glide path for that one too. And, you know, we hope that there'll be innovation that'll bring costs in line and we'll, we'll see how that goes. The third area is our fleet. Now that yeah. is changing because it is not just the little forklifts and the, you know, (laughs) distribution center or the truck that drives around this, we're talking our massive tractor trailers 
that go long haul, like they leave California and they're gone for five days to Ohio. So what we need to do to decarbonize that fleet, given the weights they bear, the loads they carry and the distances they go, it's mm-hmm. the infrastructure for charging as well as the drivetrains and the trucks themselves. It's a very big deal. And so we're doing some experiments now, like up in Canada, we have a deal with Tesla where we're purchasing a number of their trucks. Those distances are shorter, right? It's a different challenge, but you know, we'll learn from that. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, we'll just, we're just going to have to work on innovation um, with many people, folks in academia, as well as industry and, you know, uh, NGOs, folks like Environmental Defense Fund have a lot of expertise in this arena. So that's, that's tricky. I, I don't know how we're going to do that one in that time frame in America, right? There'll be right. other countries that will electrify sooner because the distances are shorter and other things. They go back home every night to charge, but we'll, we'll figure it out. And then on-site fuels is another one. So that would be like, you know, gas for yep. rotisserie chickens or whatever. You so, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll work, we'll get that to zero as well. So we've lined it all out and we have, you know, teams working all over the world on this, each of those parts. And uh, stay tuned. We'll be reporting. We report every year how we're doing, what's working, what's not, what are we learning? Awesome. Well, I'm, I look forward to that. It's just, I think it's so incredibly impressive. There's a plan. I've got a plan for that. Which is great. Very Elizabeth Warren. Um, right. <laughs> so, it's nearing our time to say a uh, call to a close, but what I thought would be terrific would be, what are three actions that listeners could take towards being a regenerative consumer? Yeah. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you four. So the more the merrier. First of all, learn. There actually is some learning involved. You know, think about how you go through your day. You have your coffee, what do you, you know, eat eggs for breakfast, you might drive a car, you might be on the computer. Like there are a lot of things you do in your life. So what are all the ways that you live on the planet and the um, impacts you may be having or the interaction with climate, nature, people, etc. So learn about those and, and what are some of the approaches or solutions or ideas around um, regeneration with respect to those. So that's one. Two, you know, we were saying earlier, there's a, there's a, the idea of sustainability is limiting your impact can be a little limiting in and of itself, but that said, it is an important lever for sure. So where can you, through your personal um, consumption or presence, reduce, reuse, you know, recycle, but you know, even be careful about recycling. It's not the silver bullet answer. So it's really like, at where can you reduce? Where can you reuse? And just do you need that mm-hmm. next or not? So that's one. Third is diet. You know, what are you eating? And and this is one where you know, happily, there's kind of an intersection between things that are good for your body and will make you healthier, and things that are good for the planet. <laughs> so just consider that. You know, what are you consuming, and what's the impact of what you're consuming on things like emissions or ecosystems and so on? Companies are trying to do more and more to educate consumers about that at an item level, right? You can see if something's certified or not, or what have you. But, you know, again, it comes back to the learning and it's why I'm giving four because I do think there's some learning um, as a consumer to do about that and make some choices there. And then finally, I would say you talked about different forms of capital. Use your financial capital to reward the organizations that are doing their part on this. And that's not just companies, it's NGOs, you know, others like who can you support with your financial capital 
that really is working to make a difference on these things. All very doable and yeah. all wise. That's the thing, isn't it? So now if we just practice the discipline right. to do it, and I, all of those are the sorts of things that once you start, it can become this ingrained system. So, well, oh my gosh, Kathleen, thank you so much. This has really been um, a fantastic conversation. I'm so excited to see what you do. I'm so glad that you're in the role that you're in. Oh, well, thank you. It's, I, uh... I, yeah, I mean it. I think having someone who is as, as smart and compassionate and also worked in the corporate side so much and still sees the, the potential there is, is, mm-hmm. is huge and willing to share. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you. It's, uh, it's been a real pleasure to be with you, Kate. Thanks. My pleasure. Thanks so much. And to listeners, thank you so, so much for joining us. We know you have a choice of how to spend your time and we're really, really heartened that you chose to spend it with us. So until next time, Kate Byrne, President SoCap Global saying thanks so much. Take care.